Now I'm supposed to say something important. Fortunately, I don't feel that pressure very often. Fortunately, meditators tend to be very open-hearted and forgiving. And so I often feel more safe than maybe I should. While I was sitting this evening, it became obvious, as, it's, as it often does when I sit, and maybe it did for you as well, that with my eyes closed, and in the moments that my mind is not giving rise to thoughts of the past or future, thoughts of myself, I... Uh, cannot tell on present evidence, on immediate experience, and even with my eyes open, I can't tell how old I am. I can't even tell on immediate and present evidence whether I'm a man or a woman. I can't tell whether I'm tall or short. I can't tell whether I'm intelligent or not. I can't, I only know that I am. I only know that I'm conscious, present. And I realize in those moments that, that whatever that consciousness is, whatever that presence is, doesn't have an age. And in some way you could say that's a, it's an indication that it, it is, um, that the very consciousness through which each of us, each of us is perceiving is deathless, has no beginning and no end, it has no gender, Uh, we're just conscious. And this reality of, as Rumi put it, the nowhere where we came from, he says live in the nowhere where you came from, even though you have an address here. We see that we, as he says, we own two shops and we run back and forth. What are the two shops? The two shops are that we are all living every moment in the deathless. Beyond name, beyond form, beyond, beyond birth, beyond death, beyond age, beyond gender, beyond all these, all these forms of duality. That's the, the nowhere where you came from. But then he says, even though you have an address here, and your address here is, I'm a man, you're men, women, I have an age, I have a history, I have a story, I have have many different identity views, I have a sense of time, of the past, and I know that that the part of me that, that in me that has an address here is uh, the fact that I was born into that that location, that sense of somebody that exists in time, I am, by virtue of having been born, uh, on my way uh, to dying. And from the perspective of, the, of having an address here, I have, to, I have to deal with the reality of sickness. If I'm born, I have to deal with the reality of sickness, the reality of old age, the reality of dying, the reality of death. That's 
comes to the one who's born, no matter who you are. I was speaking to Mark, wherever you are, before, and we were talking a little bit about death and dying. And uh, it was occurring to me that when we're when we're really in touch with death and dying, really in touch with it, sometimes we think we're the only one that's dealing with it, forgetting that everyone is. And then, and then when, when we're out of touch with death and dying, we think everyone else will die but not us. You know, in fact, in the Bhagavad Gita, the, the, the question was asked to, in one dialogue, I can't remember who it was, what's the most wondrous thing in this world? And the answer to the question, what's the most wondrous thing in this world, is that billions are dying around us every day, but somehow we don't think it'll happen to us. And this is, a, this is our capacity for self-deception. But we live both in the nowhere where we came from, but we also have an address here, as Rumi puts it. Uh, I'll just share a few more lines from that poem. He says, you have eyes that see from that nowhere. You have eyes that see from that nowhere and eyes that judge distances. That's time. How high, how low. You own two shops and you run back and forth. Try to close the one that's a fearful trap. Anybody fear dying? That's a really common fear. Try to close the one that's a fearful trap, getting always smaller, checkmate, this way, checkmate that. Keep open the shop where you're not selling fish hooks anymore, where you are the free swimming fish. Now he's saying that get used to this nowhere that you came from. Discover the deathless. Discover nirvana, nibbana, it's the, said, as it's spoken of in the Pali language. Find that in you which is never born and never dies. Find, in other words, find freedom. Find a sense of well-being that doesn't depend on the cycles of, of existence. It doesn't depend on whether you're, what age you are. It doesn't depend on whether you're being praised or blamed or whether you're having gain or loss. Find that, that unshakable peace within you that is the very nature of your heart, the very nature of the consciousness that you are perceiving through right now. The deepest nature of that, that pure presence is um, untouched by whatever you go through in your life, untouched by whatever visits. We don't believe that because we were very much more busy and more identified with, um, with our address here, with our identity as man, woman, person, role, uh, gender, religion, politics, whatever it is that we we tend to form our identity view, whatever we cling to as me and mine. And from the perspective of seeing things just the way they are, and that's why we practice insight meditation, from the perspective of seeing things really deeply the way they are, Clinging to an identity, clinging to this body, clinging to any role, clinging to anything becomes completely absurd. Because what do we discover when we see things the way they are? What do we discover when we see clearly? 
we discover that whatever it is that you hold as your identity is fleeting. Whatever you hold, whatever you cling to, gives you rope burn. Whatever arises, this is the basic three common characteristics that we discover when we see things as they are. That's the, the phrase is yata bhuta, things as they are. Because what we're doing in the Dharma, we're not trying to create a new reality. We're trying to see things just the way they are. Yata Buddha. How have things come to be right now? And when we see how things have come to be right now, or see things the way they are, what do we see? We see that every moment's experience is fleeting. We see everything about our minds, everything about our bodies. If all you have to do is stop and pay attention. Everything about every experience is fleeting, unreliable, and none of it, because it's always in a state of, of change, can be um, said to be me and mine. There is not even one hair on our head that we can ultimately say is me and mine. Everything in a state of transformation. Everything coming and going. Well, that quote was, thought I had it, don't. What's that? Fleeting, exactly. So we practice to relinquish, relinquish our um, clinging to uh, identities, clinging to experiences, clinging to things, clinging to ideas. Because when there is clinging in the mind, when there is one of the poisons, clinging in the form of grasping or condemning, or clinging to an identity, which is called delusion, uh, this, is where, this is where we suffer. And it's through delusion that it makes us not uh, see things the way they are we actually start to become confused and think that clinging to this address that we have here can somehow, we can find some kind of security, some kind of safety in, in things that are very fleeting. This is something that Helen Keller understood. She put it this way, security is mostly superstition. It does not exist in nature, nor do the children of men as a whole experience it. Avoiding danger is no safer in the long run than outright exposure. Life is either a daring adventure or nothing. So our, our continual yatabuta, our continual seeing things as they are, seeing the nature of change, impermanence, Sickness, old age, and death, all the things that the Buddha recommended that we not indulge our thoughts in, but to see as they actually are, to not be, not be hiding away in, in fear and dullness, but to see clearly what is the, what's the nature of our experience here. And to see clearly that to cling to something that changes brings suffering. 
to identify with something that cannot be a reliable refuge, like an ident, like a a role, or a or our bodies, or our thoughts. To identify with that brings um, brings insecurity, brings a sense of um, of shakiness to our lives. I think I, a few weeks ago or three weeks ago or so, I talked about the the fragile house that ego builds, how we build identities around things that don't get, that can't really give us security, and we wonder why we're we're so insecure, why we're so defensive, why we're so. Uh, why we're so so easily thrown off of our center because often our center is is a um, is like quicksand. It's we we base our identity on on thoughts, on ideas. We base our identity on on our uh, conditions in at some particular time. And if there's anything on this happiness night, this is the we have the once a month happiness hour before. Many of you maybe didn't know this. We have happiness hour before the regular sitting group. On this happiness hour, it's, it's important to remember, at least as it relates to the teachings of the Buddha, that happiness in the, in the context of the Buddha's teaching is all about, it's not about having pleasant experiences. It's not about not having them. We're all free to have pleasant experiences. But the true happiness is about not is about discovering a f- inner freedom that doesn't depend on conditions being a certain way, a sense of one's center, the sense of one's ground being that which is uh, not dependent on whether you're not even dependent on your mood, not dependent on whether you're happy, not dependent on whether you're sad, not dependent on where where you whether your mind is busy, not depending on whether it's quiet, not dependent on anything, not dependent on wealth, status, role, anything. And he discovered that the hard way, as each of us has to do in our own practice. Because he tried to find a reliable refuge, tried to find security, just exactly like us, by, by trying to optimize his, his technology... No, not really. <laughs> he tried to optimize his pleasure, though, by having as much music, having as much uh, sensuality, having as much uh, as many beautiful sights and smells, and so he had a deep appreciation for the sensual world, as I think we all must, since five out of our six doors of perception are all about are all sensual but he began to see that those that all of the pleasure that one can have through the doors through the doors of perception or through the senses are although exceedingly pleasurable they are also fleeting and leave in their wake the the a feeling of insatiability a feeling of wanting more and consequently uh, a happiness or an identity that depends on on pleasurable experiences is one that's constantly in a state of insecurity. And yet that was all that was offered. That's all that we're offered from the moment we're born. We're encouraged to have just feed, feed 
the, uh, the demand for sensual pleasures, to have ceaseless sense pleasures and then ceaseless desires. And unfortunately, as, as I like to think in my own mind, it, it, that particular methodology, although it's given many, it's given all of us beings who have consciousness, it's given us enormous amounts of pleasure but it hasn't given anyone happiness because it's left a trail of clinging. It's left a trail of dependency. It's left a trail of insecurity. And then we're, we spend so much of the time in the state of wanting that we're not even able to enjoy the pleasures that we have, not able to find contentment because our mind is immediately looking for the next golden dream. So the Buddha was, the Buddha understood that once you have an address here and you get very identified with your address here, what you have, what you don't have, what you want, what you don't want, then you're, you're, se- you're set up. You're set up for a, a, an unreliable kind of happiness. And so he fortunately started to turn instead of that outward toppling forward search for the next greatest that toppling constantly toppling forward into the into the imagined future for his sense of well-being he began to turn the other way turn inward not toward the past not more in his imagination but turn inward toward the immediate and he began to meditate and fortunately there were some teachers who could point him in the direction of being able to collect himself, to orient himself toward this vital present, which is so different from uh, past and future that are just mental. And the more he did that, the more he began to feel this effulgent, full feeling, this this sense of a calm abiding and a, a sense of a delicious a delicious um, contentment with things in the present moment. Uh, as I spoke about earlier, and I can't say that he experienced this, but I have a sense that he, just by virtue of being quiet, stepped out of the whole concept of time, stepped out of his identity views, and he just felt the fullness of life right where it touched him, right where right where he is, right where you are. And this is what happens when we're in the flow and we're concentrated. And he experienced this as such a, as a tremendous sense of happiness that comes with a, with a heart and mind that are unified, that are well collected and composed. So no matter what you do in your life, if you do it with the purpose of being here, if you do it, everything with the purpose of, of being immediate and present in what you do and could be anything. If you do it for the purpose of awakening, you will inevitably, and even if you don't do it for the purpose of awakening, when your mind is concentrated, you'll experience a sense of well-being that's super, that, that surpasses the general well-being that you feel in a very fleeting way with ordinary sense pleasures. 
So he knew that there were, just by virtue of these, this, this kind of happiness that he experienced meditatively, he knew that there were more refined kinds of happiness than just, just the happiness of, of praise or the happiness of gain, the happiness of pleasure, the, the happiness of fame, whatever it is. He knew that there was something much more reliable much more sustained and that was the happiness of a, a well-collected, well-concentrated mind. But then he, because he wanted to be free more than he wanted to have continuous pleasure, well, maybe he wanted continuous pleasure, but he saw that these, these wonderful states of mind did not ultimately offer continuous pleasure. They offered beyond the mundane kinds of pleasure it offered uh, a, a new capacity for rapture and joy and and spaciousness and and unity but he also saw that the happiness of a concentrated heart and mind was also temporary and if one devoted oneself to the, those experiences their practice would ultimately their practice of freedom would ultimately be compromised or corrupted. That we you get caught up in exotic states of mind. And so he continued his search, his holy search for true happiness, a happiness that... Uh, is unassailable, it's untouchable by whatever's going on. Even though he didn't actually know at the moment that there was such a thing. But he kept practicing and practicing and practicing, kept looking, looking, looking in his body for some experience that would be lasting and reliable, and all he saw was change. He looked in his, in his moods and his emotions and for something that was lasting and that give him security, and he all he saw was change. All he saw was unreliability, beautiful emotions, connectable emotions, but nevertheless fleeting, unreliable. And a feeling of great unity would be followed by one of disconnection. And he looked in, obviously he looked in his thoughts, and all he saw was, the, was this constant, Flywheel, this waterfall of thousands of repetitious thoughts, just a thought machine. And he saw that there was no ultimate reliability to any of these. But as you all have heard, if you've read or heard about the teachings, it turned out that the more he noticed all those things, the stronger his attention became, and the more continuous his attention became paying attention to everything equally. Mind, body, moods, emotions, all the different joys and sorrows, everything he paid attention to, it didn't necessarily, he saw that everything that he had formerly gone and gone to for a sense of refuge was changing. But yet the very paying attention to all of that, the noticing, moment to moment noticing, became stronger and stronger and stronger until he saw that that the capacity to see clearly brought a kind of freedom. 
it brought both understanding that whatever rises passes away. It also brought a sense of letting go. That the more you see things the way they are, the inevitable response is the relinquishing of confusion, the relinquishing of grasping and clinging, the relinquishing of, of misidentifying, misperceiving things the way they are. And as his mind relaxed that tight fist of holding on, of holding on to this body that's changing, holding on to the mind that's fleeting, holding on to the emotions that are, you can't find even when you look for them. The more he paid attention to that, the more his mind got brighter, got stronger, and it let go. And in a, in a flash of insight, or just first before he had a flash of insight, he started to sense a, a new kind of happiness on this happiness night, happiness hour night, a new kind of happiness, which one of my teachers called vipassana happiness, but otherwise known as the joy of equanimity, the happiness of... Um, of a taste of the happiness of freedom, a sense of well-being, a sense of balance, a sense of ease that doesn't depend on what's going on, that can even pervade sorrow, that can pervade both joy, both sorrow, can pervade both gain and loss, that understands things just the way they are, yata bhuta. And then, as he rested in that balance, that joy of equanimity, his mind relaxed a little bit more, and in a flash of insight, it opened. His mind opened completely, and as one poet put it, a, a nun named uh, Tajitsu said, the way she described herself is she fell into the midst of everything. And his, one way of talking about the Buddha, he fell into the midst of everything. He fell into the, to the realization that his own uh, consciousness, that nowhere where he came from, was, is deathless. The nowhere where you came from is deathless. The very nature of your mind is untouched by what visits, that you are the Buddha, that you are free. And it's only the idea, it's only the misidentification with that address that you have here that prevents you from seeing it. It's only your dwelling in the past and ideas of the future that prevent you from seeing the deathless within you. This is what... I. I tend to read this every few weeks, but here it is again. You need the past and thoughts to suffer. You don't need anything to be free. The boulders of the past rest on your chest and destroy your life and freedom. Find the source of these I thoughts. Freedom waits, but most are engaged with something else. Don't tie yourself to anything in the past or the future it will not work. Be attached only to this moment. 
or as um, as Hafiz puts it, what do sad people have in common? It seems they have all built a shrine to the past and often go there to do a strange wail and worship. What is the beginning of happiness? It's to stop being so religious like that. So stop being so religious like that is just a moment-to-moment thing. It's just not to overuse this, but to live right in this moment, not waiting, but live in this moment in the nowhere where you came from. Just try it for a moment. Drop all of your views about yourself. Drop the past. Drop the future. Drop the present. Drop even the idea of now. Drop the idea of then. Drop the idea of want. And what do you experience before you can remember your address? This is what Nisargadatta says about it. What experience will you have? He said, the answer, the experience of being empty, uncluttered by memories and expectations. It's like the happiness of open spaces, of being young, of having all the time and energy for doing things, for discovery, for adventure. Your true home is in emptiness, nothingness, in emptiness of all content, True happiness has no cause, and what has no cause is immovable. As long as we believe that we need things to be happy, to make us happy, we shall also believe that in their absence we must be miserable. Mind shapes itself according to its beliefs. Pleasure is a distraction, for it merely increases the false conviction that one needs to have and do things to be happy, when in reality it is just the opposite. Real happiness is best expressed negatively as this. There is nothing wrong with me. I have nothing to worry about. After all, the ultimate purpose of practice is to reach a point where this conviction, instead of being only verbal, is based on actual, ever-present experience. So the next time that you experience some great pleasure, enjoy it. Or great pain, it won't last. But don't think, but because we tend to think that things will last, pleasures and pains, we... uh, we can always use the words, especially in regard to the pleasures of our lives and the things that we cling to and the belief that everything is going to be great from now on because I'm having a pleasurable moment. We can use the words of Hafiz where he says, it's always a danger for aspirants on the path when they begin to believe and act as if the 10,000 idiots 
who so long ruled and lived inside, have all packed their bags and skipped town or died. Sorry. <laughs> it's a... I really remember that, super, that uh, security is superstition. And it doesn't really exist in nature. So if, if we can live with abandon, live with freedom, as you are, you, your real nature is free. You are already uh, free to move about the country. <laughs> so sorry. Finally, the words of... I'll, I'll share a few passages from the Buddha just to close. This is since I spoke of the happiness of nirvana or freedom. The Buddha said, For one who clings, motion exists. But for one who clings not, there is no motion. Where no motion is, there is stillness. Where stillness is, there is no craving. Where no craving is, there is neither coming nor going. Where neither coming nor going is, there is neither arising nor passing away. Where neither arising nor passing away is, there is neither this world nor a world beyond nor a state in between. This verily is the end of suffering. This is the joy of nirvana. Just to put uh, the final little joy spin on the evening. I love this passage from Shantideva, the author of the Guide to the Bodhisattva Way of Life. It's entitled, The Miracle of Awakening. As a blind man feels when he finds a pearl in a dustbin... So am I amazed by the miracle of awakening rising in my consciousness. It is the nectar of immortality that delivers us from death, the treasure that lifts us above poverty into the wealth of giving to life, the tree that gives shade to us when we roam about scorched by life, the bridge that takes us across the stormy river of life, the cool moon of compassion that calms our mind when it is agitated, the sun that dispels darkness, the butter made from the milk of kindness by churning it with the Dharma. It is a feast of joy to which we are all invited. So let's sit quietly. Enjoying one moment of mindfulness, one moment of awakening, and then another and another. And enveloping your heart and mind and all the hearts and minds here with loving kindness. And to wish that all beings can have happiness in their lives. The causes of happiness increasing. 
I wish that all beings can be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. A deep wish that all beings can realize that sacred happiness that is without sorrow here and now, very nature of our own consciousness. Finally, a deep wish that all beings can at least touch that boundless equanimity, serenity, able to meet the joys and the sorrows with less grasping and aversion. And a deep wish that our practice tonight and every day, our work, whatever it is that we do, be dedicated to the welfare and benefit of all. May all beings be happy, be free. May all beings find peace with things just the way they are. Little uh, postscript before you leave. I had in the, the last week, I had the good fortune of being in uh, Mexico for the Day of the Dead. And I know that San Francisco has a beautiful Day of the Dead uh, ceremony, but uh, it, part of our, we have to really have mercy with ourselves about how fearful we are of death and dying because we hide away our are uh, dying and elderly and and we live in a kind of cult of youth whereas in Mexico as many of you probably already know the the reality of life and death is celebrated and in fact on the day of the dead the whole community gathers in the cemeteries they they dress up like skeletons they celebrate they wail they laugh they sing and it's it's just considered such an important reminder that that uh, death is certain to the one who's born and uh, and that we we're all in this together and we might as well make peace with it so i hope you make peace with dying and that you don't hide from it and uh, have fun with it actually so thanks for your practice. Reminder of the room rental, $150 a week. Always helpful to have the, the support of the room rental since it is your group. And also, Teacher Donna, whether it's me or Anushka, I hope you enjoyed Anushka. She's marvelous. Uh, uh, whoever offers teachings offers them freely, and the invitation is for you to offer your uh, generosity in the form of support. And so thank you. And it wouldn't be... It would be helpful to help move the chairs back to their original position and pillows and all that. So thanks for your practice. Nice to be back. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.